We've all heard some great lawyer jokes. Trust us, we've heard them, all of them. But without sounding too adversarial, lawyers are humans too. In fact, that's the main theme of this podcast. Welcome to The Human Lawyer, the time and place where we have conversations with lawyers focusing on the intersection of the existential and the practical. Today, we meet the world's best fighter pilot, who's who's also a lawyer, General Mike Woolley. The journey to being a fighter pilot, a Vietnam War veteran, then becoming general counsel at NASA is winding, as one might expect, but the briefest of conversations with Mike begin to shed light on how that might have been possible. One way, a strict eye for what's important. As Mike and his dad would say, if everything's important, nothing's important. For Mike, he he finds foundational importance in his family, quickly attributing his professional success to the support of his lovely bride and the encouragement of his children. From Harvard as an ROTC brat and undergrad to UVA Law School, Mike's career is a testament to dedication, sacrifice, alignment, and public service. Retired since 2013 or 14, I believe, Mike jokes that at this point, he's simply a senior citizen living on a fixed income. But his life suggests that he's way more than that, having the privilege of seeing more and doing more than the average person. So 30 minutes is likely not enough time, but that's all we have. So let's get started. Welcome to the Human Lawyer Podcast, Mike, or as others affectionately call him, the general. So thank you. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be here. And and I appreciate the opportunity to just sit and chat and uh, talk about uh, some of the things that I believe lead to success, uh, personal and professional. And uh, so I look forward to our discussion. Well, thank you. Uh, it, it's a shared privilege. Um, so I guess if we try to start at the beginning, the world's best fighter pilot is a joke uh, that you let me in on. So that, I guess maybe we start there and say, like, how'd you become a fighter pilot? Uh, I knew from the time I was nine years old that I wanted to be a fighter pilot. One of my older cousins had flown F-9s with the Marine Corps in Korea. He was a fighter pilot. He flew with Ted Williams and with John Glenn and was just an inspiration. He came home from Korea and he was about 15 years older than me and uh, became a pilot for Mohawk Airlines. And he had the whole thing, the leather jacket, the peaked cap. And he also had a plane at the local airport Took all of us cousins flying, but I was the one who just couldn't get enough of it. Couldn't get enough of his stories and couldn't get enough of flying. So at least once or twice a month, uh, I would bug him to take me up again. So I've been flying since I was nine. Uh, My dad had been a Marine. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a Marine. I wanted to be a Marine fighter pilot. And uh, at nine years old, sort of laser-like focused on trying to do that. Mm. And so then what's that look like? I mean, so you, you, I think as a younger person thinks that you just kind of go around through high school and such. And, and so you, were you still kind of actively seeking out um, opportunities to pursue flying? Not, not in high school. I came from a very modest family in terms of income and I couldn't afford to get a private pilot's license, which was why it was so great to fly with my cousin, Buddy, because he picked up all the, all <laughs> the freight. Uh, but when I was in NROTC in college, they had uh, for NROTC, in the Navy and Marine Corps, they had a program called the Flight Indoctrination Program where the government would pay for you to get a private pilot's license on the theory that back then, and I'm talking the uh, early 60s, 
which kind of gives my age away. Back then, the um, it cost about $3,500 to get through the ground school, buy the manuals, get through the 40 plus hours of flying. And the government would pay for it because it was a very good deal for them. For $3,500, they could determine whether or not uh, you were going to be a success down in Pensacola going through flight school. So rather than invest fifty dollars or $60,000 to send you down there, kit you out, I want to have you wash out of the program. If you successfully completed your private pilot's license, they assumed that you could walk and chew gum and fly airplanes all at the same time. And it was a good deal for them. And it was certainly a good deal for me. <laughs> a slight uh, diversion, but related. Have you seen the new Top Gun? Absolutely. I've seen it twice already. Saw it <laughs> once in the local theater. And then I, I was so uh, I was so impressed. I went and bought tickets to see it at the IMAX down in Charlotte. And it's it's a movie that has to be seen on a big screen, preferably on an IMAX. But um, it brought a tear to my eye and, and a, an increased heart rate as I thought about how much more accurate the flying in this one was in terms of showing the stressors on the pilots pulling G, uh, trying to plan, trying to plan a strike that seems uh, almost impossible, and the cooperative nature of of being being in a squadron and and learning to get along and trust your squadron mates. It's mm. just it's it was to me the movie was ten times better than the original. Where frankly I thought the flying was pretty hokey, uh, but the flying in this was pretty darn good. They got it right. Uh, that's so wonderful to hear. I mean, I have goosebumps. I've never, I've, and I have no context. I haven't seen it, but it's so you can hear your passion come through and kind of, and, and that's like for someone who doesn't, wouldn't be able to validate the reality to hear that from you is like uh, all the more compelling. Um, so seeing the movie uh, kind of matriculate through Harvard and then uh, you become a fighter pilot and, and how'd you get to Vietnam? Well, we all got to be in <laughs> the Southeast Asia War Games participation was not was not optional back when I went through flight school. Uh, and, and I had, you know, I had a plan and I'm sure you've heard the expression, man plans, God laughs. My plan was to go to the Marine Corps for five years, fly fighters. Uh, I was uh, I was from the Massachusetts. My family was liberal Democrats. My thought was, I'm going to serve my country. I'm going to go to law school, and I'm going to get going to get involved in politics. And I, I laugh now because uh, truly, man plans and God laughs. And you know, people, I say to myself, how'd that work out for you, Mike? Well, the politics part didn't work out, but everything else sure did. I've had a very blessed life because of a good, solid family background, a wife who was truly the wind beneath my wings, and a series of mentors who could see my passion for service and rewarded me by giving me increased responsibilities. Who's the first mentor that comes to mind? Other than my dad. Right. Um, I went to an all boys Catholic high school taught by Marist brothers, but they did have a couple of lay teachers, one of whom was new. I'd spent my junior year abroad in France in high school. And when I came back, there was a new teacher whose name was Bill Maloney, and he had been the research assistant for the famous uh, Sonny Reston, New York Times columnist. And Bill had gone to Central and his wife was from that area. He had moved back because his family was older and he needed to be close to them. And I guess it was around 
November or so, and I was a senior and I was taking his class, which was history and civics. And he's brilliant. He's really brilliant and a lot of fun. And he made you think it was not, gee, recite back to me what's in the book. It was, tell me what you think about this, which I found very exciting. And he asked me uh, around November. So he said, Mike, where have you applied to college? And I said, well, you know, Holy Cross, Georgetown, Villanova, BC. And he looked and he nodded sagely. And he said, you haven't had enough Catholic education yet? <laughs> I said, what? And he said, why don't you apply to Harvard and Yale? I said, well, kind of never thought of it. And he said to me, you apply and I'll write you a recommendation. And mm. that was a turning point in my life. Because mm. I did go to Harvard and I did very well. And um, was NROTC because again, I'm, family of modest means, but I got a pretty much a full scholarship there. And it was just, it was life-changing. Mm. And then after that, it was some of the mentors I met in the Marine Corps uh, in terms of understanding leadership and understanding what a servant leader is supposed to be. Um, these were, I tell people I've never worked a day in my life because I've always loved what I did. I thought it was worth doing and it was worth doing right. It was something that was, that was, that, was able to engender passion in me, whether it was uh, the Marine Corps, or I planned to spend five years and spent 30 plus, or um, running a foundation for eight years, or going to NASA as the general counsel, where I planned to spend three years and I spent 10. Uh, because the, the people I worked with, uh, whether in the Marine Corps or in the foundation or at NASA, were dedicated people who, uh, who thought the same way I did that it's worth being a servant leader. And first, thank you. Um, very, um, very, uh, I don't know how I said for me, emotional. I mean, because you can just see how much uh, it means, you know, that person meant to you. And then also kind of how, um, how much you value kind of your experience. Um, You talk something that we talked about very briefly in preparing for this episode is um, the way that you sign off on your emails. How you always say, like when you always say, "The world's greatest fire, the world's best fire." I started that when I was at NASA, but before yeah. then, when I was in the Marine Corps, I always signed my emails here to serve. Exactly, and that was that's what I, what I thought I was there for here to serve, and then comma next line, Mike or. Major or Colonel Wally. Yeah. And they they here to serve. Um, you talk about servant leadership. And we, I think it's probably fair to say that our current political climate is different maybe than the one that you grew up in. Um, and, and you made the observation that, uh, you know, you, your parents were liberal Democrats. And I, I would assume that, you know, as you kind of worked as um, a Marine and then as NASA, you worked with people of different political ideologies. But nevertheless, kind of there's the, that component of servant leadership. And so I'm curious how you you manifested that like uh, across the political aisles in, in your day and kind of what we may be missing today. I think empathy and a sense of perspective 
are extraordinarily important in getting through life. And if I could add a third one, it would be to have a good sense of humor. Um, and, and candidly, to have a, a, a good family behind you. Uh, my, my wife, God rest her soul, was, uh, we were married for 46 years and she truly was the winds beneath my wings. She never let my head get swollen. <laughs> she, anytime I got promoted, she promoted herself one rank above. So she was commander in chief house. Uh, and as long as I understood that, things worked fine. It's just they say, if mom is not happy, nobody's happy. So um, I was very blessed in, in, in terms of having a spouse who was very supportive because I had promised her when we got married, I said, look, five years in the Marine Corps, I'm going to go back to Massachusetts where her family was from as well. I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to get in politics in Massachusetts. So that was what she thought was going to happen. And uh, each time I put my, each time I put my letter in to get out, the Marine Corps would sort of look in their tackle box and find a very shiny lure and throw it out, and I'd bite and they'd reel me in. And but I never, I never did it without her concurrence. We would always talk it out. And uh, you know, back, back when I was when I was in the in the Corps, we used to laugh and say, if the Marine Corps wanted you to have a wife, they'd issue one to you. And I can remember when I made my first decision uh, to get out and then I got a call that offered me a job that I, I was just stumped and, and honored that they'd offered it to me. It was a three-year exchange duty tour with the Royal Air Force because the Royal Air Force had just bought Phantoms and I was a fighter weapons instructor and they wanted somebody who was a fighter weapons instructor and a, an air-to-air -air combat instructor. And um, I, I thought I was too young to ever get that assignment, but they, they offered it to me. And, and when I told the Colonel who was offering me the assignment, well, I'll have to check with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, and I can remember what he said. He said, okay, Captain, you go home and you check with your pretty little wife and you call me tomorrow morning at seven o'clock with your decision. Yes, sir. <laughs> and I said, to, I said to Kathy, look, I know what I promised. Um, but here's an opportunity. What would you think about going to live in England for three years? And she said, really? And I said, yeah. She said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I can go to law school anytime, but they're asking me to be a fighter weapons instructor with the RAF who just bought F-4s. I will never have an opportunity like this again. So God bless her. She said, let's go. And every, every, every time it was, uh, you know, I always read Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. Mm -hmm. Frost was from my hometown, Lawrence, Massachusetts. And every time something like that came up, I read the poem and I also talked to my bride about it. And she was always, she made it very plain. Uh, I'll do whatever you want, but wherever we go, I'm going to make it my home. If I want all new curtains and all new carpet, that's, that's what we have. But I know we want to get more back on the professional and leadership side of it. And that's what I'd like to talk about. Um. The road not taken. Uh, well, let's do this. One of the things I called out in your intro is if everything's important, nothing's important. How do you how do you how do you get there? How do you have discernment to decide what's important? Um, I guess the first thing is, and it was my dad. He said, Mike, if you get if you have nothing else in life that you try and develop, develop a sense of perspective. Because if you run around like everything's important, that that will translate into nothing's really important to you. 
And I have found that when, um, when situations came up that seemed out of the ordinary or dire, uh, I, would, I would measure that against, against things that I had already been through and say, okay, does this, does this, a very quick example, there was something that happened back in 2004 in a very, very, I was with NASA, in a very, very contentious election season um, that happened that they made a big mistake down at one at, at actually Kennedy Space Center. They had a town hall meeting with Senators Kerry Nelson and um, uh, Kerry Nelson and Glenn, and it was basically a rally for for Senator Kerry's um, presidential campaign. It was my first day at NASA, and uh, I was sitting there at the senior staff meeting. I'd just been introduced to everybody, and the public affairs officer stood up and said, "There's a." town hall meeting at Kennedy Space Center with Senators Glenn, Nelson, and, um, and uh, Kerry. And, you know, you don't want to jump up and say, oh, my God, what are you doing? <laughs> but yeah. I'd been out of the federal government for almost nine years at that point, And I thought, have they repealed the Hatch Act? Well, when I got back to my office, my, my, my deputy and my EA were like, General Wally, General Wally, the White House is calling, they're all upset, and Scott Block, who was then charged with enforcing the Hatch Act, is calling. And, and I kind of nodded my head and said, I think I know what their problem is. I think I know what they want to talk about. And that day was fantastic because everybody, the White House, my whole staff, the staff down at Kennedy Space Center, were running around with their hair on fire. And to be honest with you, I was just kind of chuckling. Um, and by about 6.30 that night, my deputy said, you know, sir, uh, we're kind of worried about you because you don't seem to understand the seriousness of this. And I looked at him and I said, Andrew, let me ask you something. Is anybody shooting at us? Is anybody going to die because they made a bad decision down at Kennedy Space Center? You think that the people down there said, let's see how we can ruin the new general counsel's first day? Because <laughs> if, if none of that is true, let's, I got to tell you what's going to happen. Special counsel, he's going to run an investigation. Take somewhere between a year, a year and a half. He's going to write us a letter saying, don't ever do that again. So why should I get upset about it now? I know what's going to happen. And it's not that serious. Oh, it's serious to everybody involved. But in the grand scheme of things, nobody was going to die. Nobody had made a decision on purpose. Um, it was just a mistake. And why, why get all exercised about a mistake? How... Um, I might add that that was the best first day I could have had because immediately it spread throughout the NASA legal community. Hey, this guy is not a screamer and um, he does have a sense of humor and he does have a sense of perspective, which is exactly what I wanted people to understand about. Me. One of the things I don't think most people would appreciate I would be one of those most people is how large the legal function is at a place like NASA. Like how, how many lawyers and people kind of- Well, there work? were 106, we have 10 centers across the United States and we had 165 attorneys and then some support personnel. At headquarters, uh, I had 38 attorneys, but as the general counsel, every center had a chief counsel who all reported to me. And uh, when I got- when I got there, it was like 10 dukedoms who didn't recognize that there was actually a king. And so first thing you have to do is establish your bona fides because all they knew was 
this guy's not been in the space business. What's, what's he think he knows about running NASA's, NASA's legal thing? And as I told the administrator, this isn't a substantive law job. This is a leadership job. My job is to take these 165 attorneys and treat them all like ADHD frogs who are in a wheelbarrow that I'm pushing through a burning building and saying to them, guys, relax. We've got this. I've got this. Let's just take it, eat the elephant a bite at a time, and we're going to get through any problem that we have. And that means establish your bona fides, establish your competence, establish a cooperative working, uh, establish a cooperative working thing. One of the first things I did was one of my, you know, the first day or two, there was a white paper that had to go up to the administrator. And I went in the library and I was actually researching it, which scared them all that the general counsel is actually in the library doing his own research. But I was checking on the, and then I called in the attorney who'd, who'd done the, the white paper and had a little Socratic dialogue with her for about an hour and a half. And she answered every question and it was all spot on. It was a wonderful piece of work. And it was for my signature. And at the end, I looked at her and said, Janice, I'm not signing this. And I mean, she just turned ashen and she said, I thought I answered all your questions. I said, you did. So here's what you do. Redo the last page with your name, sign it, and just put a little line under it that says approved, and I'll sign that. And that word spread through NASA like crazy. This guy doesn't care who he wants us to get the credit for our work, which is frankly how I'd run all my things before. Uh, and two things happened because of that. Number one, people realize I'm not there trying to build a personal empire. But number two, they realize that they're going to sign that and you get their very best work because they, they, they know they're going to be the recognized person who signed this thing. And if it gets up to the head shed with my approval on it, that that's good enough for the administrator. And as I told them, look, the administrator knows, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know anything about the space business. Uh, I had some people who've been there as attorneys for 30 years who would forget more in the next 10 years, in the next two years that I learned in the next 10. But I wanted them to know that I appreciated the work they were doing and I wanted them to be recognized by it. As I said to her, look, the administrator's a smart guy. He knows that I didn't write this because I mean, I just arrived here and this is a very technical paper. So he needs to know, and everybody up the head shed needs to know that I've got attorneys down here who are extraordinarily competent. And that's uh, my job. As I used to tell people, my job is to grow the tomato that's going to replace me. That's my job. Uh, so much good stuff there. There's, I feel like there's, there. I don't know where the origins are, but perhaps it's biblical, but this notion that it's amazing what can get done when no one cares who gets the credit. And, but as, as someone who, um, believes deeply in that and tries to embody it in, in the ways that I feel like I can. One of the things in full candor that sometimes shows up is, um, to, to put it bluntly, is ego. You know, sometimes you do things and you, you're, you're really invested in something, but you, you invested in that other person, something gets done, and then, uh, Maybe you feel like, I'm not saying you, maybe you feel like that person didn't appreciate it. 
and so then you like get you get in your as I would say I get in my feelings about like and so it's kind of you got to check I feel like you have to check yourself to be like no if you really believe in it in this that it doesn't matter who gets the credit then you've got to be about that so I would just say how have you remained disciplined in growing the tomato uh, because it it didn't just happen at NASA. The, no. the, the no. zebra doesn't change its stripes, if you know. I I had, uh, as I said, I had been very blessed with some incredible mentors in the Marine Corps who taught me the, the concept of servant leadership, taught me the concept of taking care of your people, the concept of if you want to get the best out of your people, you need to have them invested in what they in what they do. You need to have them understand that you're not out for you. You're not trying to get promoted on their backs. You're trying to make you're trying to make people understand that this is a cooperative effort. It's a team effort, <clears throat> and the team leader is that kind of a cheerleader. But he's also he's got to be competent enough that they have faith in what he'll do. But he, they also have to realize that. And I told them this at the first general counsel's meeting, where all the I had most of the attorneys at NASA. We had it out in Indianapolis. I said I want to share something with you. I know you don't know me. Uh, I am not here to build an empire. I had an empire. I had over 700 attorneys and support personnel working for me when I was the JAG of the Marine Corps. <coughs> My desire is not to have another empire. My desire is to have this general counsel office be the best in the federal government. To do that, I need your help and you're gonna be recognized for excellence. And for, I found, <laughs> There's a little philosophy. I found that most organizations, certainly in the federal government and in most bureaucracies, break down into 10, 80, 10, or 15, 70, 15, where 10% of the people, when the new guy comes in, they're wildly enthusiastic. 80% of the people say, oh, let me just sit back and see if this guy is what I hope he'll be. And 10% of the people, no matter how much you try and bring them along, will resist. Uh, and as I said at that first general counsel conference, for that 10% of you, this is, if not your last general counsel's conference, your second last general counsel conference, because I will find you and I will eliminate you from federal service. <laughs> I had some of my, some of my deputy general counsel, I would say, um, General Wall, you don't seem to understand, you can't fire a civil servant. I said, you know, one of them said, it's easier to shoot them than fire them. I said, uh, watch this. Uh, very simple. You put them on a performance improvement plan. When I was asked by people, you know, what's your leadership style? Say the first time someone's not performing up to up to snuff. I believe in MBWA, management by walking around. You can learn more about someone by sitting in their office for five minutes, looking at their pictures and showing a genuine interest in them as a person. So the first time things wouldn't work out, I would take a cup of coffee and go in and sit down and say, hey, you know, we had a little problem with how you handled this thing. And I need to know, is this, uh, is this a lack of training or, you know, is there something on your mind you need to talk with me about? Or, because if it's training, I can, I can take care of training. And we would have a nice discussion. The second time it happened, if it happened a second time, I would call them up to my office and say, I'm putting you on a performance improvement plan, a PIP. And uh, that means that every week I'm going to give you a series of tasks to accomplish. And at the end of every week, we are going to discuss them. And um, 
And then some of them who were the weaker ones would say, are you keeping book on me? I go, absolutely, I'm keeping book on you because I want you to do your job. I want you to be a contributing member of this team. And if it's training, we'll get you training. But if it's that you don't have the right attitude, um, you are, you are not gonna, you're not gonna last in this organization. Now, the third time it happened, if it happened a third time, oftentimes after the second one, I had a lot of people resign because they knew that this guy's serious. He will write an SF50 on us, which is a performance evaluation that will preclude me from getting a, a job in the federal government again. And so within the first two years out of the 48 attorneys I'd started with at headquarters, uh, I had 39 still left. Nine of the Deadwood ones, gonzo. And the nice part about that is when people realize that you're going to reward performance and you're gonna bell the cat, they'll work hard for you. Because it's not, this is not like Wobegon we're talking about where everybody's above average. This is as you pull your weight. If you pull your weight and you show you, I will give you all the responsibility, all the authority and all the glory that comes with being a first class attorney. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, and truly it's kind of selfish on my part because you do get their very best work. The ones that you want to keep, you get mm -hmm. their very best work. The ones you don't want to keep pretty soon figure out, hey, I didn't get a bonus this year. That's right. You're lucky you get paid for being here, occupying space and consuming oxygen. I'm not going to give you a bonus. I'm going to give it to the young attorneys who are working their backsides off to contribute to this organization. And that goes a long way toward improving morale. Wow. That's uh, a lot of great lessons there. I suppose our last, um, well, I don't want to um, take up uh, too much more of your time, but let's just a parting shot. Um, what's, what's retired life uh, been like in the sense that like now you, you may not have the, maybe the same opportunity to impact other people like in the professional space. So um, are you, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Um, you know, I, I, I retired when I hit 70 and that was uh, eight years ago. And I retired because I'd seen too many people, now, to be honest with you, I was at the top of my game. I had just signed all the SpaceX contracts and the, all the commercial space contracts were negotiated by my office and, and my folks who've done a, an incredible job finding ways around government restrictions and government uh, accounting measures to make this commercial space possible. Um, and I stayed an extra year just to get all that work done. But I then hit 70. I, I knew I was never gonna be the richest man in the graveyard. I love riding motorcycles, I love traveling. And I truly decided that uh, how many of us have seen people who hung around too long? I sure wanted to leave at a point where everybody said, God, I wish he'd stayed another couple of years as opposed to, God, when is he gonna go? <laughs> and in retirement, um, I still sit on a couple of boards. I'm pretty active in my church, uh, fairly active in my community. So while I, while I would love to be still at NASA because I still consider myself having uh, the mental acuity to perform the job, I'm not sure I have the energy anymore, and that's just a factor of being 78. But 
I loved what I did. And uh, I never wanted people to say he hung around too long. Mm. Uh, I'd rather than say, God, we miss you. And that's candidly what they did. When I left, one of the things, one of the gifts they gave me among others was um, a big a big book called Where's Wally? And it was the Where's Waldo book with tiny little pictures of me hidden in crowds of motorcycles. And the other thing they gave me was a license surround that said NASA Marine Corps and underneath said world's greatest fighter pilot. <laughs> <laughs> ah. So I felt like I'd done well at, at um, I'd done well at NASA. And it was certainly I met the same kind of people I've met in the Marine Corps and in the foundation, people dedicated to doing the best job possible, servant mm. leaders. Well, thank you for hanging with us. And sure. thank you for sharing um, a little bit of your story. And we're grateful for it. And uh, Wish you all the best and look forward to maybe connecting again sometime somewhere. We need to recognize that this is possible because of the hard work and support of the well-run media team. They make this easy. And speaking of easy, big thanks to Huga Coworking for access to their studio. And of course, the lawyers who agree to take time out of their busy, busy schedules to be here, even though we're sure they have better things to do. So thanks for saying yes. 